everyone, welcome to the 17th episode of our main podcast. This episode, we are joined by Dr. Sergio Bajar Lopez, a political science professor at San Jose State University who specializes in Latin American politics and international political economy. Along with us are Northern Provisions and Croatoan Report. We discuss the state of Mexico, generally speaking, focusing on the economy, politics, corruption, and crime. This podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. You could also check out the Lethal Minds Journal. That's a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-monthly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, check out The Freelancers. That's a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Lastly, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate. Or you could also support us on Ko-Fi. That is at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. And we'll head into the episode. Okay, so we're here. Uh, we got Northern Provisions. We got Crotone Report, of course, two of our writers with the uh, the bulletin from the Borderlands. That's on the Lethal Minds Journal. And today we have a guest that is Dr. Sergio Bejar Lopez. He's a uh, professor at San Jose State University. And really what we're going to be talking about today is the general state of Mexico, where the country finds itself today. So uh, Dr. Bejar, how are you? Uh, very good, Brody. Thanks for having me. On. Yeah, of course. Thank you for being here. Do you want to, uh, real quick, just give us an uh, overview of what your background is? Uh, yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, you know, I'm a uh, I'm a Mexican uh, citizen by born, uh, and then just got my U.S. citizenship last year. Um, I I'm an economist. My background is in economics. Uh, I did a master's in economics in the United States, and then a PhD in political science. Uh, my main areas of research within political science are Latin American politics and international political economy, uh, and as as you mentioned at the beginning, I've been a professor at San Jose State for seven years. I'm a tenure professor, uh, so um, that's you know my background. Great! Congratulations on your citizenship. That's a it's a really big milestone. It is twenty three years. Uh, it took me twenty three years. Oh wow, that's crazy! I got it. That's now. an insane amount of time. Does it usually take that long? Uh, well, so for some people, it takes a lot longer than that. Uh, you know, in my case, it was uh, it was a combination of factors because initially I came to the U.S. on a student visa, and when you come on a student visa, then you are not eligible for a green card, right? So you become eligible once you get a job in the U.S., an H-1B visa that allows you to work legally in the States. Uh, so, you know, once I got that uh, in 2011, 2012, it took me 10 years to get it. So it's five years of 
almost five years to get the green card and then another five years you have to wait at least five years in my case it's like a fast track because of my profession uh for but for some people for mexican citizens in general it takes you have to wait 10 years uh, you know after getting the green card to become eligible for citizenship but in my case it was five years but still a long period of time yeah yeah i had no idea it took that long that's insane Getting started off here, I wanted to get an overview of Mexico, mainly the challenges the country has today, um, really the, the big challenges, and also any improvements that have been made since, really since the current president took office. That's uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, as a lot of people like to call him. If there are no improvements, you can go ahead and say that too. I'll leave that up to you. All right, but I think that, uh, you know, just to, to simplify things, I would say that Mexico has uh, three important uh, challenges today. The first one has to be violence. Mexico has become a very violent state. Uh, and, you know, violence, crime uh, lead to to many other different challenges, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if we look at data, uh, the number of uh, civilians, the, the number of dead civilians in Mexico has just increased substantially, in particular since 2012, 2013. Um, and, you know, the, the war that the Mexican state is, uh, is having with, with drug cartels, uh, has also led to an increase in, in violence and crime in, in Mexico, right? Uh, there are many causes for this, you know, in addition to the, to the drug on wars that is happening in Mexico. Uh, but, uh, but that has to be perhaps the most important challenge today, right? If, if we are thinking about the democracy that was on the verge of becoming consolidated when you have very high levels of crime, very high levels of violence, it, it's actually very difficult for democracy to uh, to get established in the country, right? in any state, not only in Mexico. I think the second important challenge in particular these days is uh, the quality of democracy. Right? It's, it's been a challenge since Mexico became a democracy in 2000, uh, around 2000, 2000. Uh, but, uh, you know, today we are, uh, we are, Mexico is confronting uh, a government that is led by an authoritarian populist figure that tends to overlook institutions, democratic institutions, and, 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 and that's an important challenge for the Mexican state, right, for democracy and obviously for the Mexican state. Uh, so making sure that uh, Mexico uh, has uh, a good a quality democracy uh, is important and is, is simply not not happening. And the third important challenge is the economy, right? After the COVID-19 crisis, uh, a lot of people actually uh, were out of jobs. Uh, the economy uh, in Mexico uh, has been struggling uh, for a while, especially since the late 1990s, early 2000s, with very low rates of economic growth, and and the COVID pandemic uh, just uh, 
created the situation more more difficult. Mexico is is growing at very slow rates, and when you grow, when a country grows at very slow rates, then what actually happens is that poverty and income inequality increase, uh, and that has to be uh, the third important challenge uh, for Mexico. Uh, you asked me about improvements, in particular since AMLO, um, since AMLO came to office in 2018. Uh, and I'm going to say that there is, you know, despite of the challenge, all the challenges, all these, uh, all these problems with the quality of democracy, with populism in Mexico, I think, uh, you know, AMLO comes from a leftist background. And one of the things that he's been doing in Mexico, that he has been doing in Mexico, is he has been providing poor people with help from the Mexican government, monetary help from the Mexican government. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a valid attempt to, to decrease income inequality in the country, right? I mean, as I said, there are many problems with, with his government, but making an attempt to, uh, to at least decrease, right? One of the most important problems in Mexico, which is income inequality is, or has to, has to be acknowledged, right? So, I think that is, uh, you know, I think that's one of the one of the things that we need to to admit that has been or is been uh, or he's been doing right uh, for the past four years. And you could correct me if I'm wrong, but from my point of view, at least, it it seems like income inequality is really something that uh, leads to corruption. Um, political instability and crime. Is that an accurate statement? No, that's actually a very accurate statement. Right? I mean, what you see when there is uh, when there's a lot of income inequality is that, uh, you know, you have a small segment of the population uh, that has the economic means to, to make a good living, but then the majority of people actually tend to be very poor, right? That's what the concept of income inequality actually means. And this only leads to a number of different problems, right? It leads to income inequality, poverty, not only lead to corruption, as you said, but they, it also leads to violence, right? Because uh, people actually, uh, you know, find it easier to, to get money uh, or to survive if they engage in criminal activities, uh, for example, uh, right? And so income inequality leads to a number of other economic, political, and social problems that are obviously present not only in Mexico, but in many other developing countries. So how exactly did income inequality get so bad in Mexico? Why, why is the state's economy how it is right now? That is a good question, Brody. I think, uh, you know, when we look at income inequality in Mexico, we we need to look at the history of the country, right? Uh, and, you know, Mexico is a country that was dominated by Spain for a couple of centuries. Uh, the structure that was created, the, the, the government, the social structure that was, uh, the political, the social structure, the economic structure that was created by Spanish people was based on inequalities. Uh, and I think income inequality in Mexico uh, 
finds or has its roots back in the colonization of the country, right? Back in the 18, in, in the 16, 1700s. Um, and when Mexico became independent, it was just very difficult for, for Mexico and for many other Latin American states to actually end the problems that were created by, uh, by, by this uh, colonization by the Spanish, right? Uh, but in the modern history of Mexico, you know, we look at uh, the 1970s in particular, uh, Mexico experienced a number of economic, very severe economic crises. Uh, the first one in the late 1970s, uh, created by, uh, by the crash in oil prices, 1978, 1979, Mexico is a, a major producer of oil in the world. Uh, but the problem uh, in Mexico was that uh, the Mexican economy in the 1960s and 1970s was basically pegged to oil, right? Uh, and when you are so dependent on a natural resource and the price of that natural resource decreases, then your economy is in trouble. And that's precisely what happened in Mexico. Uh, but that was not the only major economic crisis in Mexico, right? Mexico had a debt crisis in 1982, and then another important financial crisis in 1987, another one, a big depreciation of the Mexican peso in 1994. So it's a series of economic crises. And economic crises tend to have a much more stronger effect, negative effect on poor people, right? Economic crises tend to increase the gap between the rich and the poor. And usually the poor are the ones who suffer the most in an economic crisis. So I think the current levels of income inequality uh, find uh, its origin in that series of economic crises from the late 1970s, early 1980s, all the way to the late 1990s. The Mexican economy has been stable in general terms since uh, 1996, 1997. But the gaps created by this economic crisis between the, the rich and the poor uh, have just not been solved, right? Have just not been closed. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, it's it's not it's not only in Mexico. It happens in any country that experiences so many economic crises, right? Closing these gaps between the rich and the poor after repeated events is is extremely difficult. And so, these factors that caused these economic crises in the last century uh you know the oil prices debt are these are these things still major vulnerabilities to the economy no they are not because uh, you know one of the things that governments not only in mexico but in many other latin american countries and developing countries learned was that they could not affect their economies right or base their economies on natural resources like oil um, and, and today, uh, the Mexican economy is very diversified, right? It's not, it doesn't only, doesn't only depend on oil. So there are many sectors. The manufacturing sector in particular is very important in the Mexican economy. And uh, that dependence to oil doesn't exist anymore, right? Uh, so I don't think we have to worry about that today. Uh, but there are other important factors, right, that could you know, generate another economic crisis. For example, um, 
uh, you know, the fact that Mexico is a very open economy, right? And in particular, finance in the financial sector. Uh, and so, you know, if the Mexican government uh, doesn't do a good job capping the government deficit, uh, you know, and it incurs in, in a lot of debt, uh, then, you know, with rising interest rates, uh, we could see problems in the Mexican economy in the future. And going back to the president, AMLO, you talked about some of the programs he has as far as uh you know, closing the gap in income inequality and all those things. And like, particularly as a leftist, that that would be generally something that a leader would focus on, right? That's kind of what we, one of the things we think of when we think of like leftist political leaders, but how much of his actions are being guided by the presidential election that I think is coming up in 2024, right? I, I understand that he can't run again as per uh, the constitution, but, um, I mean, you would want to think he at least wants to keep a little bit of influence, right? I've heard a name being thrown around about uh, a successor of his. I think it's the mayor of Mexico City, but I'm not really too locked into that. Yeah, that's that's right, Louis. I mean, look, the, what, what actually happens uh, with AMLO is uh, that, I mean, he, he's been wanting to be the president of Mexico since 2006, right? Uh, he lost... Uh, two presidential elections before he became elected in 2018. Um, I think, you know, in addition to looking at AMLO, we need to, to look at, you know, the actions uh, that he's, he's taken to, to get elected, right? Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he has created a structure that is similar to the structure of the PRI, you know, the political party that dominated Mexico for 72 years, based on uh, political clientelism, right? Providing goods and services to the bases of the political party in exchange for political support. Uh, so there is obviously, uh, you know, what, what, what we actually see in, in, in AMLO's presidency is that he's never left the campaign trail. Right. Since day one, he's been campaigning, right, uh, for 2024. Right. So there is at the at the beginning, I mentioned that that one of the most important challenges of Mexico today is the quality of democracy, right, or, or you know the consolidation of democracy. Uh, and what we are seeing in Mexico is this democratic backsliding, right, that. Is generated by the fact that this guy uh, is doing or is trying to do everything in his power to remain in power, right? He cannot, by constitutional design, he cannot be reelected uh, as president of Mexico, but he can ensure, right, if he uh, devotes the necessary resources, he can ensure that someone close to him uh, will win the presidency, right? And there is obviously this movement uh, that is supporting, as you mentioned correctly, uh, the mayor of Mexico City, right? Uh, Claudia Sheinbaum, who is uh, a political figure very close to AMLO, right? And that we could expect will continue with uh, the same ideas and the same policies that AMLO has been put forth since he became the president of Mexico.
so I'm not aware of how things work in Mexico, obviously, but here in America, like the, the campaign trail is always going, right? You got a presidential election, then you got the midterms two years later. And as soon as the midterms are over, it's presidential season again, right? You have a ton of people declaring and all that. So again, I don't know how it works in Mexico, but are there other key players that will be in this election that have announced already, or is that too early to tell? Well, there are two other candidates from AMLO's political party. Uh, and then obviously there is, uh, uh, there are other political parties in Mexico. Right now it looks like there will be a coalition, right, of three political parties, uh, the PRI, the PAN, and the PRD, nominating one candidate uh, to oppose the candidate selected by AMLO. Um, but, you know, I'm not completely sure if the campaign trail always goes on in the United States, right? And, and this is this is an important point because uh, when I say he's been campaigning since day one, right? Uh, I think about the press conferences that he gives every day uh, from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., right? Those press conferences uh, are dedicated to criticize political opponents, to criticize the press, to highlight uh, the, the things that he thinks he's doing right in Mexico. Uh, and that is something that you do not see in good established democracies. You don't see the president right, of the United States giving a press conference from Monday to Friday, right, uh, crushing political opponents or criticizing um, journalists. Right? That is the type of political campaign that he is having in Mexico since day one, his presidency, right? Uh, he says this is done because of uh, his desire to ensure that there is accountability, right? And that people are informed. And I think in any democracy, people have the right to get information, right? From, from the government, but there are ways to get the information, right? It turns out that most of the information he gives in these press conferences, daily press conferences is false, right? It's fake news. Uh, and so he's misinforming the people um, you know, obviously, this misinformation has the objective of generating political polarization in Mexico, right, which will turn on his supporters, right, and turn off the people who are not uh, his supporters, right. That's the kind of political campaign that can damage democracy, right, because in, in a good democracy, people should get information from the government, but information that is correct, information that is true, right? Not fake news. Uh, as a matter of fact, governments in any functioning democracy should oppose fake news, right? And should oppose providing citizens with information that is false, right? Uh, so, you know, we see this movement, uh, you know, behind his presidency and his, permanent campaign, uh, you know, 
that has the objective of dividing the fund, right? Uh, and also he has the objective of ensuring that he will have electoral success in 2024, he and or his candidates, right? The candidates of his political party. And so far, we have seen that this strategy is paying off, right? Because when you look at the number of governors that belong to his political party, uh, you know, in the past three years, in elections in the past three years, most of the candidates of his political party have won those state elections. If you look at Mexican Congress, right, let's forget about the 2018 Congress, but if we think about Congress in, in, in the 2021 elections, he won majority in Congress as well, right? So his strategy of misinforming the Mexican public of using right the presidency of Mexico to misinform people is actually paying off, right? And and obviously, as I said before, it has the objective of uh, of ensuring that he will win or his party, his candidate will win in twenty twenty four. So, just from listening to the things you're saying, it sounds like. When AMLO was first elected to office, it sounds like the conditions were really ripe uh, for someone like him to be elected. You've talked about how uh, really the, I guess, state of democracy in the country has uh, really always been fragile for however long it has been a democracy. Why, why is democracy so fragile in Mexico? Because of the institutions that exist in the country. Uh, let's not forget that Mexico uh, transitioned to democracy in the late 1990s, early, to, early in 2000, early 2000s. Uh, but the institutions that were created by the so-called perfect di dictatorship of the PRI uh, are actually not very democratic, right? Or were not very democratic. Changing institutions overnight is very difficult. You can transition from a non-democracy to a democracy overnight. We've seen that in many places, in many countries of the world happening, right? But the problem is that when you become a democracy, changing the institutions that existed, existed, that existed in the non-democratic regimes is very difficult. So institutions are fragile because Authoritarian institutions do not perform well in a democracy, right? number one. And the existence of those institutions, in particular in the case of Mexico, led to a lot of corruption. So as you said correctly, right, the conditions when he came to office in 2018 were perfect for a figure like AMLO. Right? And they were perfect because there was a lot of violence, right? The, the, the war on drugs is, or has been a problem for more than 10 years, almost 15 years in Mexico. But after two presidencies of the right-wing party, uh, National Action Party, PAN, um, that were somewhat calmed, uh, you know, that you know, didn't really have any miscues. In 2012, the Mexican people elected a president that was a member of the PRI, okay, the party that governed Mexico for 72 years. And during his presidency, there were a lot of corruption scandals. And that really, really 
uh, increase the chances of AMLO, uh, you know, during his run for the presidency in 2018. Corruption scandals were big because people were just fed up, right, with the institutions that existed in Mexico and with the fact that there is a lot of impunity in Mexico, right? Politicians can incur in any act of corruption. And most of the time, in many cases, they do not get punished for that, right? Uh, and, you know, in, in, in a place, in a country where people are fed up with those kind of figures, if someone else comes and says that he's going to end or she's going to end corruption, then chances are that a lot of people are going to believe that idea, right? Surprise, surprise, it is, it is actually not that simple to solve corruption, right? Because corruption is ingrained in Mexican society, right? You find corruption even at very low levels of Mexican society. It goes from the bottom up. Corruption in Mexico is not only something that is particular of politicians or that politicians do, right? Corruption is something uh, that an average Mexican person engages on all the time, right? So yeah, the conditions were there, right? In addition to these corruption scandals, uh, the Mexican political parties lost the strength, right? Which is kind of surprising in a democracy that was actually making good strides for many, many years. Uh, but institutions, parties uh, in particular, uh, uh, didn't really uh, uh, strengthen themselves, right? And so the Mexican party system it was in an influx, right? It was in a time of change, and also that is an important factor explaining why he, why the conditions were there for, uh, you know, for his victory. When you have, when you have parties that are not strong and a party system that is uh, unstable, uh, outsiders, right, uh, or populists actually have a good chance of winning elections, and that's precisely what happened in two thousand eighteen. I have a question. And so going back to what you just mentioned about corruption down to the very lowest level of Mexican society, does that impact everything from local farmers to drinkable water to clean clothes, these kind of things, or are those kind of set off to the side? No, I think corruption impacts. It's a great question. Corruption impacts everything, right? Uh, you know, when we think about corruption in the United States, we think about, as I said before, right, government officials just stealing money and using the money for uh, for their benefit, right? But when I say corruption is or goes down to the to the lowest levels of Mexican society, uh, what I mean is precisely that, right? That uh, that even those people, right, farmers, for instance, have to engage in corruption if they want to sell their products, um, right? Um, or uh, you know, government officials use rather than providing uh, uh, water, you know, to these rural poor communities in Mexico, just to steal the money and don't do that, right? So, it, you know, corruption is a uh, corruption is a phenomenon that that has again uh, an important effect, uh, a negative, right? A, a, an important negative effect on uh, on the poor people. Right, in particular in these developing countries in a country like Mexico. With that, is there any indication that local 
individuals, say farmers or something of the sort, might take up arms against local police authorities or corruption, corrupt officials or something like that? Is there any indication of civil unrest at the lowest level? Uh, well, there's actually no indication. It has happened before. Uh, it happened in the state of Michoacán, for instance. It's happened in Chiapas. It's happened in Guerrero. It's happening in Guerrero. Uh, uh, in in many many cases, uh, the fact that the Mexican state is unable to provide protection to farmers, in particular, uh, has led to farmers, uh, you know, creating their own groups to defend themselves against against their cartels. Uh, and so this movement is called the Vigilantes. Um, you know, it started in Michoacán uh, maybe seven, eight years ago. Uh, Michoacán is a state that, uh, you know, is the main producer of, of avocados in the world. It also produces a lot of lime that is exported to the United States. And drug cartels started to manipulate the market, right, or to ask. Uh, you know, these producers for bribes, these farmers for bribes, so they could actually sell their products uh, to to the American companies. And because the government couldn't actually do anything to protect farmers, farmers actually took up the arms and started to defend themselves. So that has happened uh, before in Mexico. It's happening now. I don't know if we have enough information to claim that this is something that will continue to happen, okay? Um, it's very difficult to predict, uh, but given the very high levels of violence and crime that we are seeing, I don't know how many years we'll have to wait for this, but it is actually not difficult, right, to foresee a situation or see a situation in which not only farmers, but normal citizens, uh, you know, take up, take take up the arms and start to defend themselves against criminals in 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 Mexico. So organized crime is obviously a very big thing in Mexico like we've just been talking about. I think a lot of Americans don't actually realize how uh bad the situation is, you know, in terms of the drug war and the government's dealings with criminal organizations like a lot of americans understand that there's a war in a sense right but i don't think we really get uh the implications of it how many people have died how entrenched these organizations are um in really the country's institutions um I mean, how how big of a threat are these criminal organizations to Mexico as a whole, I guess, particularly the state, the state structure. Well, they are a big threat, a big threat to 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 the Mexican state. Right? I mean, what we are, what, what we have seen over time, is that drug cartels have become more and more powerful over the years, and drug cartels, you know, back in the nineteen eighties, nineteen early nineteen nineties had specific areas, right, uh, of the country in which they actually perform or did their business, right? Very specific states, in particular border states with the U.S., right? You think about states like Tamaulipas, Chihuahua, Baja, uh, Sonora, Sinaloa, 
you know, a, a state where they used to produce a lot of marijuana, cocaine. Um, but violence was, uh, or drug cartels were very focalized, right? It was very easy to see where they were uh, and, and, you know, they didn't really spread out in the Mexican territory. Since 2005, 2006, that has changed a lot, right? And so now there is criminal presence uh, of drug cartels in every state in Mexico. It's not only that there is presence of these cartels in every single state of Mexico, it's also that in many of these states, the Mexican state is just unable to provide safety to normal citizens. It is actually drug cartels providing safety to the citizens in those communities. So that is really a problem, or that could really be a problem for the Mexican state, right? Because uh, in many cases, in many places, the Mexican state is actually at the mercy of criminal organizations. And obviously, the Mexican people are at the mercy of criminal organizations, right? Uh, in political science, when we analyze, when we study theories of the state, right, it's a very famous theory uh, of state creation um, put forth by Charles Steele, right, saying that, uh, you know, when states, uh, uh, when states are created, when they are formed, uh, or what actually happens is that, you know, they have to, they have to fight wars against internal and external rivals, right? And, you know, in the end, when you defeat your external rivals and your internal rivals, then you create a state, right? And eventually that state, if you have the good, the, the institutions that are necessary, that state is gonna be strong. Right? If we think about that theory and, you know, then think about the Mexican case, what is actually happening in Mexico these days is that we can see drug cartels as internal rivals for the Mexican state. Right? And, the reality is that those internal rivals are in many cases, as I said before, much more powerful than the Mexican state, right? The Mex in any democracy of the world, the military, right, uh, is not allowed, right, to be on the streets, right? And, you know, to just go and kill drug dealers or members of drug cartels, right? There is a, human rights organizations, watching the Mexican government, what the Mexican military do. And on the other, on the other hand, you have these drug cartels, you know, doing whatever they want to do, right? So this war on drugs in Mexico is really not a very balanced war, right? Because uh, the ones that actually have all the power are the drug organizations or the drug cartels. And if that doesn't stop, then the Mexican state is in real danger, right? Or will be in real danger at, uh, you know, in, in, in a few years. I'm sorry, you've talked about how um, these drug cartels have some legitimacy uh, compared to the government in the eyes of everyday people. Like, personally, I've heard stories of, you know, drug cartels starting schools or medical clinics, right, and providing aid to people, or giving them security, or like 
some just weird form of unofficial law enforcement in some cases enacted by drug cartels i mean this it sounds like a very serious issue for the government if they can't provide any of these things to their people but the drug cartels can is there is there a path forward for dealing with these issues i don't know if there's a path forward there should be right uh but you know just i'm just gonna go back a little bit uh, uh, you know and, and just take on what you said uh, you know i was down in mexico over the christmas break and uh, just to give you examples of you know the extent of drug cartels uh, during christmas for example in the state of jalisco uh, major city in jalisco in guadalajara uh, one of the most powerful cartels in mexico actually delivered toys to kids in the city of Guadalajara, right? Two blocks from a police station, right? And the police didn't even show up, right? That's one example. The second example is, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but a couple of weeks ago, the son of El Chapo was captured by the Mexican military in mm -hmm. Sinaloa, right? Ovidio Guzman. He was hiding in a small town in Sinaloa, right? And people there, right, after he got captured, uh, were extremely upset with the Mexican military, right, uh, trying to kick the soldiers out of the town. Uh, and they made it public in many interviews, right, that they were not happy with the presence of the Mexican military because actually Ovidio was providing them with a lot of safety, right? And as you said, what they do is they not only provide safety, they build schools, they build churches, right? Mexican people are very religious, Catholic. They build churches, they give them money, people feel safe, right? Um, is there a path forward? There must be a path forward, right? Uh, the path forward is through the creation of strong institutions. The path forward is ending impunity in Mexico and punishing criminal acts, right? Uh, the path forward is allowing the Mexican military to do their job, right? Which in the end is protecting the citizens. The path forward is by ending corruption at low levels of local police right? Because what actually happens is that by the time the Mexican military gets there to capture, for instance, Ovidio Guzman, he already knows what is happening because local police officers are in touch with him, right? So there are many different things that can be done. Is he DC? No, it's not simple. It's not DC um, because as I said, there is a history, right, in Mexico, uh, and, and the history is weak institutions in the country, right? So changing institutions uh, is something that is not easy to do. It hasn't been easy, right? And when you are in the middle of the conflict, it's even more difficult, right, to put for these, these changes. But obviously, something has to be done.
when you're Who's talking to your part. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, all right. Thanks. So on the topic of the cartels, what about neighboring Guatemala or Belize? What are those governments? Um, do they have any issues with the local, say, warlords or cartels? Is there any cross-fighting between the two? And if so, how do those governments kind of address the Mexican situation? Well, Central, I don't think there is a lot of... Uh, well, I think the main war is happening in Mexico, right? Uh, uh, and... I don't think there is a lot of there is a lot of issues. Uh, you know, if 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 Mexico is is a weak state, if we think about governments like Guatemala, for instance, uh, you know, the state is even weaker. They don't have the resources. Uh, in Central America, uh, El Salvador, right, and in particular uh, Bukele, the president of El Salvador, has claimed that he has ended. Uh, gangs and you know violence and crime. Uh, he's another populist, right? I don't know how truthful his claims actually are. But uh, again, I I don't think that the war is is fought in Central America, right? Central America is just has always been just a transit territory for drug cartels, right? The, the real war is being fought in the Mexican territory. Right? And it's being fought not only between drug cartels themselves, but between the Mexican military and the drug uh, and the drug cartels. In the in the last administration, particularly in the last U.S. presidential administration, there was some talk of. Uh, U.S. military action in Mexico. Not not that I think that would ever happen or even necessarily be a good idea, but I guess is there is there a way that, in your opinion, the United States could work with the Mexican government? I know we do to an extent, but that relationship's kind of been strained um, since AMLO came to office, right? Is there some way we could partner with the Mexican state more than we already do to alleviate some of these issues? Well, the U.S. has tried to help, right, in the situation in Mexico through the Merida plan in particular. Back in 2012, it delivered billions of dollars, right, that were supposed to be used to, uh, to buy weapons, to buy intelligence material, right, to, to, to fight drug cartels. Uh, but there's always been cooperation between the DEI uh, and the Mexican government, right? Uh, you know, constitutional constitutional designs of these countries, both countries are sovereign. And, you know, a direct intervention of the U.S. military or the U.S. government in Mexico is it's not likely to happen, right? I mean, and, that, and that's because it will violate sovereignty. In, in the Mexican territory. Um, but you said correctly, right, that this cooperation between the Mexican government and the EI is strained, right? Uh, it used to be very productive, uh, but uh, since 2018, uh, you know, it's there, but it's really not delivering any results, right? So I think what the what the US government, I think the US government has to do two things. Number one is uh, 
it has to put conditions to the money it disburses to Mexico, right? Um, they continue to disburse money to, to fight this drug and, and, and wars, but the money goes without conditions. And that's a problem, right? Because when the money gets there, then we cannot, as taxpayers, as US taxpayers, we cannot know how the money is spent, right? And we need to be careful, right? Because in the end, it's us, it's you, it's me, it's the person listening to this podcast paying taxes, right? That may eventually go to, to fight this war in Mexico indirectly. We need to make sure that the money is spent productively, number one. And that's a job that is spending by the US government. And number two, the US government has to push AMLO's government, the Mexican government, to cooperate with them. Right? Because this is part of an international agreement, right? And the United States has, the United States government has been very soft, right? Uh, in, 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 in this particular issue uh, since 2018, 2019, and that has to change, right? Because cooperation is important. Uh, the DEI provides important intelligence, right? To the Mexican military, to the, to the Mexican government. Uh, but without this cooperation, right? Then again, these resources are just going to waste. I wanted to circle back real quick on corruption. We talked about that a lot. Obviously, we talked about corruption being at the highest levels. I wanted to see if you could give us an idea um, of the extent of corruption at the highest levels. What When it comes to mind to me is uh, this trial that's going on right now for a high-level official that was serving with uh, Felipe Calderon from 2006 to 2012, I think. Um, it's a pretty interesting case that isn't really getting a lot of attention. Uh, but from what I've been able to gather, the person that's on trial right now, his uh, the allegations against him aren't particularly unique, I guess I could say, among top-level Mexican officials. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, you know, when, when we think about uh, people in charge of you know, fighting the, the drone wars in Mexico, he's perhaps, you know, the most influential figure that has been caught, right, in the in the U.S. or by the U.S. government. A um, couple of years ago, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Peña Nieto's Secretary of Defense, was also caught in LAX, in, in the Los Angeles airport, on similar charges, right, uh, you know, getting money from from drug cartels, he was uh, in jail for a couple of months and then he was released. Uh, but this Garcia Luna trial is, is, is very important, right? Because, uh, you know, regardless of whether he's found guilty or not, uh, the allegations against him are 
they're pretty strong, right? They're pretty harsh. Uh, it seems that drug cartels are actually uh, sponsoring the Mexican government officials, right? In exchange for leniency, right? Towards their activities. Um, I'm not surprised by, by this accusation and I am not surprised because the extent of corruption in, in the Mexican government is, is important. Right? I mean, you know, it's obviously impossible to, to say a number, right? What percentage of government officials engage in corruption or engage in prohibited activities with drug cartels? It's impossible to say that. But the fact that they are not punished, right? Makes us think that it's a high percentage, right? Yeah. They have incentives when there are when there is no punishment, right? Agents have incentives to engage in corruption, right? And to do these illegal activities. Um it's important, this this trial is important, uh, you know, not only because it illustrates the fact that, yeah, um drug cartels actually buy government officials, right? So they can transport drugs through the Mexico City airport, right? Easily, uh, or buy protection from uh, from the federal police, right? Which is another accusation against Garcia Lima. Uh, but it is important, I think, because, you know, one of the things that we haven't discussed now is this story has two sides, right? And, and we're talking, we've been talking about the Mexican side of the story. But the other side of the story is the United States, right? The, the war is being fought there, right? But drugs actually do not stay in Mexico. A very small portion of drugs actually stay in Mexico, right? The majority of you know, the drugs are actually exported to the United States or to Europe or to Asia, right? I think this trial is, as I said, important, it's interesting because it kind of shows that, yeah, Mexican officials at top levels engage with these bad guys, right? But I think it's important because people need to think what actually happens on this side of the border. How do drugs make it from the border to San Jose, California? Easily, right? How do drugs make it through ports in Southern California or in Florida? Right? Are Mexican drug cartels or Colombian drug cartels so powerful that they can actually do everything they want without help from government officials in the United States? I don't know that, right? And we need to start questioning that too, right? We need, we need to start questioning how these guys are actually so, so successful running organizations that, you know, exist in 150 something countries in the world, right? How these guys are so successful creating a fentanyl crisis in the United States, right? Perhaps, you know, corruption doesn't only happen, right, in 
the Mexican government, perhaps corruption is also happening here. And we are just blind and don't want to see it and don't want to do anything about it, right? This is important because in the end, yeah, Mexican people, the Mexi the average Mexican citizen is extremely unsafe these days because of the violence with drug cartels. But the US population, right, is enduring the very negative effects of these drugs that come to the United States and that are distributed everywhere in the country without control. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to have you on here in the first place is I don't think how I was saying before, I don't think people realize just how much um, the state of Mexico affects us here. Uh, obviously, you talked about the fentanyl crisis and how I think well over 100,000 people are overdosing per year just on that drug alone that is flowing over the border. Um, people have died here very recently, and it's been going on for years as a result of the war. I know there was just a, a mass murder in, I think, the Central Valley in California that I don't think it was said which cartel authorities believe was, uh, you know, involved in that, but it was cartel violence as far as authorities are concerned. And that's really why I wanted to bring you on here, because it, it does affect us. And we also don't think about what goes on uh, behind closed doors as far as government officials go here. I think that's a really good point that you brought up because stuff doesn't happen on its own. Well, that's, I, I think that's, I, I think that's a very important point, right? Because as, as you said, I mean, people are dying in Mexico, right? Uh, a lot of Mexican people have died. Hundreds of thousand people have died in Mexico. But people are dying here too, right? It's a different kind of phenomenon, right? But they are dying of drug overdoses, right? Uh, other people are dying uh, because of gang fights, right? In cities across the country, right? Uh, and we need to think about it, right? Because we see, we tend to see this issue as a one-sided issue. But the reality is that there are two sides in this story, right? There is a supply side, which is Mexico or the Mexican drug cartels. And then there is a demand side. Who buys these drugs? Who distributes these drugs outside Mexico, right? Uh, and, and we don't tend to see this side of the story, right? Uh, and to have a complete picture, uh, you know, we need we need to look at both sides of this of this story. Mr. Behar, um, so you know, in in terms of like conflicts and everything like that, the uh, American attention span can be rather fleeting. And something I, I feel like I've noticed, just kind of observing the conflicts, is that we've become captivated with wars in Europe and wars in the Middle East. Um, however, Mexico is, has been struggling with this civil conflict for some time. And like you said, it it has impacted the United States so much. Yet, um, 
it seems like there's just not a lot of attention and energy and resources put towards understanding the conflict right in our back door, or excuse me, in our backyard. Why do you think that is? Why do you, do you think it's just because it's such a complex situation that we don't want to take the time and effort in figuring it out? Or what's your perspective on that? I think we lack, uh, I think we lack information, number one, right? I think the information we get about this conflict is that it is a conflict that is exclusive of Mexico, right? Uh, which is wrong for all the reasons that we have talked about in the past few minutes, right? I mean, this, this story has two sides, but I think the average American citizen just doesn't get complete information, right? Um, and I think that's that's an important determinant, right? Of the lack of attention, uh, you know, of this issue. Uh, and this lack of information, obviously, you know, has, has or creates other, other problems, right? There is, there is just a lot of misinformation, right? I mean, I'm gonna give you an example, right? I talked about this, uh, militias, right, these vigilante groups that uh, were formed in Michoacan seven or eight years ago, right, the farmers trying to protect themselves from, from drug cartels, right. Um, avocados have become uh, a very popular meal in the United States, right. I mean, it's like everybody, it's a very trendy thing to eat, right, an avocado. Uh, People go to the supermarket, right? And then we complain, right, about the high price of avocados in the supermarkets. But if we look at the, the, the trend in the price of avocados, uh, what we will see is a marked increase in the price of avocados, especially since these vigilante groups were formed, right? So drug cartels are actually increasing the price of avocados that wheat in the United States. Let aside the fact that there is, you know, a fentanyl crisis in the United States and that people are dying of drug overdoses here, right? This drug on wars has a direct impact in our pockets, right? Which is pretty bad, right? Given the high levels of inflation that our economy is experiencing. I don't think people actually know about this, right? People do not know the kind of things that this war in Mexico is affecting this side of the border. Right? And I think that's why there is no attention or there is a lack of attention from the American public regarding this war. Right? When we think about Mexico, right? We think about going to the beach, drinking a margarita, right? Having a nice tequila. Uh, and that is fine, right? Mexico is that, but Mexico is many other things as well, right? Mexico is just not this country where, you know, we just go have fun and come back. But for many people, it's just that, right? And we do not realize the kind of relationships that actually exist between Mexico and the United States. Right? Mexico is one of the most important trade partners of the United States, right? If drug cartels control the avocado market, we'll pay more 
for avocados. If drug cartels start to control the tomato market in Sinaloa, we will start paying more for tomatoes. If drug cartels keep controlling or keep smuggling illegal immigrants into the United States, and we will keep seeing, right, this immigration crisis in the United States. So this is a problem that will never end if we don't pay attention to it, right? And I think that is the reason why people don't care that much about it, because they don't see how serious it is or how serious it can be. And, you know, uh, Northern brought up the point that Americans really have short attention spans uh, when it comes to conflicts across the globe. Um, I would add on to that. I would say Americans just really have short attention spans when it when it comes to anything that's happening across the globe. Um, right. And particularly Mexico. And I think a lot of that has to deal with the fact that it just does not really get coverage from uh, the news media that we have here. I mean, they might talk about Mexico for maybe a three minute segment. And that's that's really it. Um, and that's pretty sad to see considering it's right there on our border and we have this relationship with Mexico where you know things that we do affect Mexico and vice versa right every day um where can Americans go to I guess really uh get more educated on what is going on in Mexico particularly those that don't speak Spanish well, it's a lot of uh online resources that people can can access, right? Uh, you know, major newspapers, in particular in, in, in cities that have a high uh, proportion of uh, people who speak Spanish, usually have news uh, about Mexico. Uh, but then you have, uh, you know, many Mexican Television, TV stations also broadcasting news, uh, you know, on YouTube and you know other social media. Um, you know, given uh, uh, you know the, the all all the different means that we can have, I I think people you know could start by like perhaps following some uh, Hispanic journalists right on Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, uh, just, you know, be careful who you follow and make sure that those are uh, truthful sources of information, right? Uh, as I said, the New York Times, the LA Times, they all have, uh, you know, sections dedicated, if not specifically to Mexico, to news outside um, the United States. Because you are right, what actually happens is that TV stations never actually show news that do not belong to the United States, which is pretty sad. Uh, but the BBC, for example, does, right? Uh, the BBC always, uh, Al Jazeera also has, you know, more neutral coverage of, you know, things, news happening outside the United States. Those are two TV stations that people can, uh, can look, you know, if they want to get some information about the things that happen not only in Mexico, right, but in other places of the world, because I think, uh, you know, today, you know, the world is so globalized that, you know, things that happen in Africa, things that happen in Mexico, things that happen in Europe actually affect uh, our daily lives in the United States, right? Um, 
so those are some sources right that people can uh, that people can get uh, you know information about about mexico uh, and you know there are then some reports uh, policy reports right that are generated uh, by institutions in dc in particular that you know that specifically talk about uh, you know, the violence, the conflict that exists in Mexico, why the conflict is important. And it, they provide, you know, a lot of data and a lot of numbers that illustrate very clearly, you know, the magnitude of the situation. And that, you know, hopefully will help people to understand, uh, you know, that this is, this is an important issue and one that we should not minimize, right? Because as you guys have said, uh, Mexico is our neighbor to the south, right? It's the backyard of the United States, right? If the Mexican democracy collapses, then our relationship with Mexico will change, right? We should care about that. If drug cartels take over, then the relationship we have with Mexico will change and we should care about that, right? Uh, a lot of people uh, who live in the United States have families in Mexico. And they live in fear, right? That something is going to happen. I live in fear that something will happen to my parents, right? That's important. We should care about it, right? Uh, but around 10 million American citizens actually live in Mexico, right? And use they are in danger, right? Every time they go on a highway in Mexico, every time they travel, we should care about that, right? We need to get information, right? Because our uh, U.S. citizens, our own people are there too, right? It's not only Mexican people, right, who are exposed to, uh, you know, to violence and to crime and to corruption. It's American citizens, right? And as I said before, we should care and we should get information because our tax dollars are used, right? The percentage, a proportion of them are used in Mexico to help Mexico in this, in this world. Mr. Behar, um, when we look at, let's say, Afghanistan, for example, right, earlier you you mentioned that in Mexico, these cartels are able to provide for people, right? And when the Mexican government is not able to do that, those cartels then become very influential in those communities. And with a country like Afghanistan, we kind of saw similar traits happen where the Taliban was providing for people where the Afghan national government couldn't. Do you foresee the situation in Mexico deteriorating to the point where you will have cartels essentially overrun the Mexican government itself um, and then in turn kind of rule the country in a, for lack of better terms, legitimate manner? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to... I mean, it's difficult to make a prediction of all this, but what I can say is that uh, in many places of Mexico, drug cartels are actually in charge of the government, right? Also very difficult to prove, right? We don't have any proof about it, right? But, uh, uh, you know, for instance, uh, there are some states in Mexico where uh, people claim candidates who run for office are nominated by members of drug cartels. Right? and then supported by drug cartels in their campaigns because they, they want them to win. 
right? So that's that's uh, that's that's a problem, right? Um, then you have sections, parts of the country. Mexico is a large country, right? It has many different geographical regions. It has forest, it has desert, it has sea, it has everything, right? You have many places in the forest where the Mexican military, where the Mexican state actually cannot access, right? And those places in many situations are actually run by drug cartels. So the situation that you mentioned is already happening, right? In some parts of Mexico, um, I don't know if we have enough information to predict or to say that this, you know, that eventually they will take over. Um, but the situation has clearly deteriorated in the past five to six years. I mean, that is for sure, right? The situation has deteriorated and, and the power, as I mentioned before, the power of these organizations has grown over time, right? So that's a risk. The risk exists exists right it's difficult to know whether it will happen and if so when it will happen um, but uh, the grow of this the growth of these organizations needs to be uh, stopped right otherwise you know the situation that you describe in Afghanistan is you know it's likely to happen right I mean these these guys will not uh, uh, these guys will not stop and 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 uh, and uh, you know the the one of the things that that we haven't talked about is the fact that uh, you know the Mexican state doesn't really have a lot of money right to fight this war. Uh, you know one of the things that is that is common in in developing countries is that states just don't have systems right that raise enough taxes to buy weapons for the military, for instance, right? Yeah, but drug cartels, criminal organizations have a lot of resources. So this is, this is kind of an unequal world, right? Um, and difficult to, difficult to say, we, don't, we, we lack studies about it, right? There's no scientific evidence about that. We don't really know what incentives the leaders of these cartels actually have. We don't really know if they actually want to control the government or not, or simply just do whatever they want to do, right? Without facing the consequences. So it's hard to predict, but, uh, but certainly it's, it's happened. It's happening in some places, right? Uh, it's just not, it's just not, it hasn't spread all over the country. And I think we've noticed too, especially um, recently with the violence that has kind of increased, especially in uh, Sinaloa, the cartels are very well armed. Um, where exactly are they getting their armaments from? Are these from, you know, weapons that they've essentially gathered after fighting with government forces, or is this are these weapons that they're getting from overseas? Well, that's a great question. No, these are weapons that they get usually from the United States. Uh, you know, that's something we haven't talked about. But, uh, you know, the majority of weapons, obviously there are some Russian arms, but the majority of weapons are, are, are obtained illegally in the United States and then transported to Mexico. Um, 
you know, Brody asked me a question about what the U.S. government should actually do, and this is a great follow-up, right? Because another thing that the U.S. government should do is it needs to put some control, right? It needs to stop uh, drug cartels from getting weapons in the United States. It's a great question. The majority of weapons used by drug cartels come from the United States. They come from overseas. How are the cartels able to get those weapons from the United States down to um, Mexico through the border? Are they mainly utilizing kind of maritime routes or are they just able to sneak them across various points of the border that are weaker than others? Well, I think they use whatever method suits them, right? They can use naval, they can use uh, land. Uh, you know, that is a good question, right? Uh, it's a question that the Mexican government asks itself all the time. How are these guys able to transport the weapons from the United States to Mexico? Well, the first point is how will, how do they buy them, right? Where do they get them? And then the second is how do they transport these weapons in the American territory, right? Once they get to the border, we know that they can just pay, right? The uh, the customs official in Mexico, and then just you know take it to Mexico. Uh, but how do they make it to the border? It's a question that needs to be answered by the U.S. government, actually, right? Because we don't know that answer. The Mexican government doesn't know that answer. It has asked the American government for answers and it just doesn't get any right um so that is the situation there just a quick point on this for our listeners i'm i'm going to put on my tinfoil hat here a little bit uh, i would encourage you guys to look up operation fast and furious uh it was an operation by the department of justice i think the dea is actually the ones that carried it out um within the past uh, 10 years, I want to say, or 15 years uh, at the most, um, where basically the DOJ would acquire firearms, you know, through various means, whether they're buying them, whether they're guns that were confiscated, whatever, and they would purposefully let these firearms end up in the hands of Mexican drug cartels uh, in an attempt to somehow track them and have these firearms lead them to high-level cartel officials that they could, you know, arrest. Yeah, Mr. Behar, uh, I just have one more for you. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, with the immigration crisis that we're facing right now, um, we've essentially seen the weaponization of human trafficking, right? Um, how is this something that we can successfully combat as a country when there are so many, you know, so much control factors in terms of the cartel itself. Um, when we struggle as a nation internally on the topic of securing the border in general, it, it kind of makes combating the actual complexity of the situation more difficult. How do you think as a country we could successfully kind of combat the cartel's influence in weaponizing human beings? Well, we need to attack the sources, right? Um, 
it is it is important to stop uh, uh to stop the the problem by you know since since its roots basically um drug cartels um you know we've been talking about uh, most of the conversation has been about deaths has been about smuggling drugs right into the united states but the reality of drug cartels is that you know there is an important characteristic of these organizations is that they are very diversified right i mean they not only smuggle drugs into the united states right the, the, the main business is actually smuggling people into the united states these days right these days the main business of drug cartels in mexico is really transporting these immigrants central american Haitian, some african people uh, throughout the Mexican territory, all the way to the border, and then you know just uh, you know help them to to cross uh, to cross the border. If the United States doesn't cooperate with the U.S. government successfully, right, or efficiently, right, to decrease the power of these organizations, then we will continue to see illegal immigrants being smuggled into the United States, right? Because they, because these organizations have no incentives to stop doing a very profitable business, right? Smuggling people is more profitable than smuggling drugs, actually, into the United States. So the U.S. government has, has to devote, you know, some time, some attention, and a lot of resources, right? It, it really needs to step up the cooperation that it has with the Mexican government to decrease the power of these organizations. Um, and, you know, you, you need to find a way to, uh, to decrease the power. And another important thing that it has to do is it really needs to start helping Central American countries. There are some attempts, there have been some attempts at that um, because uh, poverty and income inequality are a big issue there, safety as well, right? So if, you know, as long as people want to keep coming into the United States illegally uh, because they are unsafe or because they are so poor, they can't afford to, to live in those places or to eat, right? Uh, then there is always going to be demand for these services, right, that are provided by drug cartels. Just to give people, I guess, a glimpse of how big the issue of human trafficking is, within the past 24 hours, there was a man from Iran that was actually detained uh, while crossing the border, and he is on a terror watch list from the DOJ. Uh, and he was caught, you know, that's nothing to speak about people that have not been caught. So it's obviously a very big issue that when people think about it, they think it's Mexicans and people from Central America coming over, which of course a lot of them are, but it's definitely not all of it. Um, one last question I have for you. I don't want to take up too much of your time. And I know this may be hard to predict, but where where do you see Mexico in five years? Well, that's uh, the million dollar question, right? Um, yeah. 
a very difficult question to answer. Where do I see it? I think, I think, uh, you know, given the recent trends, um, I do not see it in a very good place. Uh, you know, if something major is not done quickly, uh, then I think the level of violence, the level of crime is going to continue to rise, number one. Um, I think uh, democracy is in big danger, right? Uh, the 2024 election is before those five years. Um, if that election is is won, right, by AMLO's party, then I see a continuation of this democratic backsliding that we talked about before. Um, and I also see the Mexican economy struggling in five years because I think there's been a lot of government spending uh, in the past few years uh, that uh, has been possible because of government debt, right? The government is acquiring debt everywhere it can. Uh, and having too much debt, right, is part of the history of Mexico is not a good combination, right? It's not a good factor. And so that will or can have an impact in the Mexican economy as well. So I think those three, you know, just to, just to bring the, the look back, right, to where we started. Um, if, if nothing major happens, and by nothing major happening, I, I'm thinking of the opposition winning the presidency, right? Uh, or this coalition winning the presidency. I don't really see a path forward for Mexico to leave the path that AMLO has taken it into, right? Uh, once you start going into that spiral, We've seen it in Venezuela. We've seen it in Nicaragua. It's very difficult to get out of it. I think Mexico has the opportunity to get out of it in 2024. If it doesn't happen and someone close to AMLO, with these hardline leftist crazy ideas is elected, populist ideas is elected, then the future is not very bright for Mexico in the next five years. And it won't be very bright, not only in five years, it won't be bright in 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully something major happens in 2024. I guess we'll keep our fingers crossed. Well, um, I, I think really, I think, you know, one, one, one important thing is that Mexico is still a democracy, right? And people have the power mm. to uh, to change things up, to change things around, right? It's actually not AMLO or his party, right? Yeah, they influence the decisions, but people need to wake up, right? People need to wake up in Mexico and people need to wake up in the US as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Behar, I think that's all I have for you. Uh, Northern, you got anything else? Absolutely, uh, Dr. Behar. I really appreciate you coming on, and I would definitely love to hopefully uh, Brody and, and myself can get you back on here soon. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you. 
All right, Norbert. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it was uh, really great having you on, Dr. Behar. I really appreciate you coming. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Appreciate your time. Bye, guys. Bye. Hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. We've been planning on doing it for a little bit. I'm glad we finally got around to doing it. Um, I was super excited going into this. And again, I want to thank all my guests that I had on, uh, Dr. Bauer Lopez, Croton Report, Northern Provisions. I also want to thank you guys for supporting this podcast. You guys have really helped us grow, especially this past year. And it really does mean a lot to me. You could find us on your favorite apps. That is Spotify. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, anywhere you listen to them, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. It's the and symbol not spelled out. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash Analyze Educate. Please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on uh, whatever app you use to listen to this podcast if you feel we deserve a five-star. If you don't, be honest with your rating. And that is all I have for you guys. We will see you around.